Uh, it was a real treat to be able to be asked to speak at this event, because normally I have to do all the work organizing it. Um, so yes, I convened the Student Experience Network around eight to ten years, um, and really excited that it's merging into this new space. And I think it represents an interesting shift in the sector, where suddenly the access widening participation network and the student experience network started to seem like very similar things um, and almost interchangeable as far as where you could put a topic to the degree that we were like I think they should be the same thing um, and so I think it's a, an interesting evolution in terms of research what happens so what I'm going to do is take a little bit of a look back I'm not quite as comprehensive and detailed as Julian because I think the student experience doesn't have the same sort of here are the metrics this is the thing, we don't really know how to measure it, people don't really know what it is, um, and that's part of what I want to talk about. Um, I think the Student Experience Network's been the most interesting at the annual conference because it is the grab bag network. <laughs> it's where all the proposals that don't fit into any other strand can go, because you could at least kind of vaguely relate it to the student experience usually, um, which means there's a huge amount of diversity, as well as diversity of people who are kind of part of the network or associated with the network. It's a much looser membership than I think other aspects of HE. Um, it usually, interestingly, has the highest number of people who attend seminars. It had the largest number of submissions at conference. Um, and it had the largest number of people, kind of people attending sessions at the conference. But the fewest number of researchers who said they, they would kind of define themselves as researchers of the student experience. So it's interesting, it was kind of the most popular, but kind of the least research, which is the kind of this idea of like the Cinderella aspect of higher education research. And now what I say is kind of moving into the Queen Bee Land. Um, so what I want to do is briefly reflect a bit in the past, talk about some issues about uh, students' agency in higher education research, which I think is a really interesting area to explore. And this move from the student experience to students' experiences. If you were ever to submit a journal article that had the student experience in it now, I can almost guarantee you, you would get a peer review comment back that said, I think you need to talk about students' experiences. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the student experience is a thing of the past. And whether it was ever a, a useful term, I think can be debated. Um, and also talk about the political context associated with this kind of SRHE move um, around access, participation, uh, and completion and success. Um, so I'm just going to ramble a little bit and put some slides up that list the different um, events we ran just for you to read. Um, I actually spent about half an hour trying to develop a ticker in PowerPoint. Um, it's very complicated and I did not manage it. These were all supposed to be rolling like a BBC style <laughs> as I talked, but it was... I, I lost so much time. I was like, I have things to do with my life. So you just get static slides. Um, it was going to be amazing. Um, uh, Anyway, um, so I think one of the things we started researching the student experience, and it was it was a lot more of these kind of big topics. You know, they were quite meaty, they were quite broad. The student experience was kind of a thing. You could almost compare it across countries. Um, you know, you could look at different aspects, like which international students kind of student experience, um, the accommodation. So we could go in a lot of different directions. We had a lot of fascinating um, network events, bringing in a lot of people outside of HE research. Um, so often people from the student union or people from, uh, in the case of like an accommodation event, um, Unite and student providers, uh, geographers looking at, you know, kind of town gown issues. So I think we took a lot of lenses of thinking quite broadly about the student experience rather than just people who work in HE. 
um, and think and have a similar view of what the student experience is, but instead kind of ranged quite widely in thinking about the student experience. Um, so those are some early events. Then we moved on to interesting phases of, you know, starting suddenly policy became a much bigger aspect to the student experience. Um, looking at things like ladism, so sort of big consequences around the student experience, highlighting events, what does this mean? Um, a lot with like student unions and is student the student experience. Suddenly it used to be kind of something you could talk about generally and then it was like, well suddenly we need students to represent the student experience. You know, what's the role of kind of students being there and their role in student politics? Ran some fascinating events bringing in students who were kind of shaking up the sector in non-traditional means. So students at Glasgow that led some of the um, divestment work there almost about seven, eight years ago now. Um, students at Manchester that got up in arms about the curriculum being too narrow in economics and setting up an alternative curriculum. Um, that group is still kind of going, which is fascinating, and the kind of political issues. So it was suddenly students were here talking about themselves. So it was a, a, a big shift in doing research, which used to be kind of, as a researcher, you were kind of back and away and you looked at something, um, to suddenly the participants being part of it in a very active sense. Um, and it was a real shift to kind of think of, um, you know, <coughs> SRHE as it had been and then what it became suddenly when students were here talking about their experiences and their experiences as, in terms of researching higher education. So not just kind of, here's a token student to now reflect on this, but students being part of that research and what that started to look like and this kind of shift to thinking about engagement more broadly and what that meant across the sector. Um, and we've had quite a grab bag set of events over the last few years. Um, interestingly, I kind of ran events for a few years saying, would anyone like to take over this network? <laughs> um, and what I found was there were a lot of people who were very interested, but there were very few people who had kind of full-time academic roles where the student experience was core to what they would research, that they would have confidence in doing this. And they were in kind of a position in their institutions where that would be an acknowledged part of their role. So there were a lot of people in actually professional services positions, but they go, my contract doesn't allow me to kind of spend not a huge amount of time, but really any time, you know, designing these kind of networks, which is a traditional part of like an academic contract. This is actually what you need to have things like the roles that the network conveners have now, like on your CV for promotion. If you look for kind of moving up to being a senior lecturer or um, a professor, there's like actual job criteria that say you need to convene networks, you need to have leadership roles in societies and that sort of thing. But I couldn't get, I could get lots of people to run seminars <laughs> and help out in various ways, but people kind of couldn't step up. And I think it was an interesting acknowledgement that a lot of people had a lot to say, but weren't in positions where they were allowed to contribute in some ways. So people could come to an event, they could do a one-off kind of CPD day, but not kind of commit more than that. So it was a really interesting kind of conundrum. So what we did was kind of had a huge number of people come in and kind of suggest events and run seminars, um, but not as part of kind of a coherent whole. So it was kind of an interesting time. Uh, ran some really fascinating events, including one that Francois, I think, can say sold out the fastest. Uh, which is what makes for refable pedagogical research. <laughs> um, a huge amount of interest and in kind of suddenly people going, oh my gosh, there's so, much, so many of us doing that, but what does it mean to do it at like a high quality level? You know, there's loads of this activity happening and I think it signaled a real 
shift and it maybe not be in a primary area of people's jobs. So it's not that they're on a ref stream and the student experience is what they do, but they do bits of student experience research and pedagogical research and want to know kind of what does it mean to raise the game on that. Um, and I think it links to a lot of Julian's research. How do we get outside of just in institutional evaluation into like, well, how do we say something more? How do we gather evidence to like influence policy more than lots of people just kind of chundering around trying to do the very best for their students and do that in a research and evidence informed way to that kind of next step? How do you actually do what kind of research says on the tin, you know, bringing it together, being able to kind of whether it's generalizability or interesting findings, pointing out new things. So it's kind of an interesting shift. Um, and so it's really exciting. These are the events we had run, and now this is the first of the new network. Uh, so that's a bit of my, like, going in the past. <laughs> um, and one of the things I think it was interesting, um, we had a reflection on this in our little group earlier, how much of what we know about higher education do we think is sort of new and really different, and how much of it is actually just slightly different takes on what we know to be kind of core truths in higher education. Um, and I reflect on this research and a lot of what I've done, um, good principles in undergraduate education, and I don't think there's anything that we're doing now that we would sell on this is what we really need to do to like educate our students well, no matter what background they're from, no matter what way they engage in higher education, that isn't roughly covered by these. I mean what in the 1980s they thought respect diverse talents and ways of learning meant is obviously much bigger and broader, but that as a principle is still the same. And I think it's how do we do these things well, which we know lead to good learning? You know, how do we create the environments? How do we bring in the students? How do we structure the curriculum? So in some ways we kind of, we have our roadmap for like what a good student learning experience is. And it's just how do we kind of support that and build that and think about that um, versus sometimes I think people think we need to like revolutionize it. And you're like, well, we kind of know these are the things that lead to learning. I mean, your time on task can be face to face. It can be online. It can be alone. It can be in groups. But it is that time on task, you know, has been key and important. Um, prompt feedback. <laughs> I mean, you can define prompt in different ways and you can have organizational nightmares about what promptness means and, you know, consequences of getting that. But it is like the, the core principle of, well, you need feedback in time to kind of do the next thing to build on it is the kind of nut of it. And how have institutions either moved away from it from when we kind of knew this was a good idea to then having to like come back to it. So I think it's quite an interesting way to kind of reflect on some of the old stuff versus always thinking we're doing something wholly new. And do we have some of these foundational things to think about in terms of research that we can build on um, where we actually advance things rather than everyone kind of starting a new piece from scratch each time, which is what leads to a lot of advancements in sciences and I think sometimes we struggle with in the social sciences to have that same sense of building on previous research. Um, in coherent ways. This draws on some analysis I've done that I'm still working up into a publication, but I present on it a lot, of kind of different approaches to thinking about using data in terms of the student experience and how it frames the way we think about students. So I would say one lens we have is sort of a consumerist lens. 
I mean, it's kind of what satisfaction is based on, you know, what were your expert expectations and what were your subsequent per perceptions of what you received? Um, how would you kind of link things like value around that, your kind of consumer experience? Uh, different approaches, which tend to be much more localized around teaching and learning. And this was the idea around things like engagement data that took off much more in the US than it did here with the National Survey of Student Engagement still running strong and being part of you know, institutions approach to quality and part of quality analysis in the US still from when the survey was launched in the 1990s to it being kind of a very bit part of the UK higher education space, um, not able to kind of gain traction dis despite being based on those core principles I mentioned earlier by Chickering and Gansom about what leads to high quality education. So why have we not managed to kind of get this on board? And I've worked at universities where it was like, here's your engagement data, and people are like, what are we supposed to do with it? Because we're just used to rag rating NSS scores. We've become so institutionalized into what data means that we don't know what to do when we get data that's just kind of, well, there's no right number of students who are supposed to ask a question in class. It's just useful for you to reflect. Did you want them to? Then did they? And you know, you, you kind of reflect on, you know, students' academic challenge, and is that right? And, you know, were there differences by groups? And people go, well, no, what does management say I need to do differently? And you're like, well, this is about your autonomy as a teacher. And it's like, I don't have autonomy as a teacher. So, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, people come so enculturated into, like, just needing to change things that someone else tells them. It's like, it's, I think, on both sides, this lack of, like, understanding of what to do data for kind of enhancement purposes. There's lenses of kind of enhancement and evaluation, like internal data. So whether you would think of this as like module evaluation type data and bespoke surveys, module evaluation data is going to be the most useful data for you as an individual teacher to inform your practice. Um, it's biased and unreliable when you try and use it for purposes outside of that lens of, you know, how well did this person teach? But when you start to try and compare across groups, and use it for promotion and enhancement, there's a big problem. But it's still the most valuable data you would ever get as a teacher, much more so than like an NSS score that comes at you three years later in terms of, well, did the students that I was teaching, was that useful? Um, so it's interesting to think about some of this stuff can become quite toxic when used in kind of really rigid promotion ways, but it's actually the most useful when used in kind of the ways it was designed for. Uh, in the UK, we're in a new regulatory space of student outcomes data, but I think sometimes a little obsessed with thinking that we're unique in this. Um, there's a lot of countries and systems that are adopting performance-based metrics. Um, I think one difference is that they're doing it in more holistic ways. So in um, Ontario, for example, um, they're adopting performance-based systems. They have things like graduate salary data as part of a suite of metrics, but it's used as part of uh, access, experience, and graduation kind of all pooled together to kind of say each of this fits a bit of it, and it's not used in kind of single metrics in insanely high stakes way with huge funding consequences. Um, so we're not alone, but I think we are unique in how single metrics have started to kind of dominate things, mm. like the potential for a lot of the LEO data, how it might be used to kind of judge course quality and context. But I think there's an area of kind of student experience research to be like, we're there's other ways that this data is used and collected elsewhere that we're not reflecting on. We're kind of acting like we're unique and alone, and a lot of this has been done to us. 
um, as never been done to one before. Whereas there's a lot of examples of these different types of data being used in different regulatory and quality assurance practices um, in countries around the world. And I think there's a lot more need for student experience research in those kinds of ways to be more comparative in nature. And how can we learn from practices elsewhere? Um, and then there's the bottom lens, which is where happiness and David Attenborough and T's and unicorn live um, in the empowerment space, which is often treated as an inherent good. Um, and that, you know, any form of student engagement and partnership is wonderful and beautiful and well-intentioned and everything works um, versus a lot of problematizing of that work and space and consequences and who's included and who's not included. Um, I, I, I've done some recent critique of the OFS and their student engagement strategy where I'm like, I think a lot of that is window dressing, trying to look nice rather than actually, you know, true engagement. And they say things like, we are going to work in partnership with students. We will offer students internships. <laughs> That's not partnership. It sounds nice, but that is not what partnership is. Um, and so there's a huge challenge of um, the place of students in this. And but at the same time, the principle is kind of the most important principle. So it's like, how at the same time do we promote and encourage students to be active agents over their own learning and not just become data entities, which I think Julian's presentation reflected on. Students stop becoming students. They start becoming things. Um, I was at a presentation where someone was like, well, why don't we just put a little WP tick box for students to kind of tick the boxes and then they'll know if they're WP and then they'll know if they'll get automatically admitted. And I was like, so you're just literally labeling students because it's like the government says these are our targets. So basically you need to, it can be hard for us to know if you're our target. So you tell us and then you can go around and be like, I've got two A's and a WP flag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and then you go and like sell yourself as a student around um, with the gold card of I was a care leaver. <laughs> I get to go anywhere I want to. Um, and But that's almost like, what it's become when you think when you stop thinking of students as students and students as people, they just become data entities um, and like representations of different metrics rather than individual agents. Where there can be a policy rhetoric that like students as numbers should go to different places and do different things versus being actual people who might not want to go to the place you want them to go for whatever their reason is, um, and that. You know, there's a middle class assumption of, you know, moving up in higher tariff universities are always better. And lots of students who go, why in God's name would I want to go there? <laughs> you know, um, but there's an assumption that like you should and you must and we must make systems for that to happen versus the reality for a lot of students where they're like, I don't want to go to Oxbridge. Um, that's almost not seen as a valid choice. It's almost like you would need you would need to mentor them further until they would realize this is what they need to do. <laughs> you haven't sufficiently outreached your students. Um, but where does that sit? Um, which leads me to a bit of um, work I've done where we can think about student engagement and voice research and this idea of research kind of about students. So when are students things that you study um, and you might interview them and learn about them or they might just be data points that you study, you know, where they attend, where did they come from, so it's kind of, they are a thing and then you study them. Um, or is it that nice sunny space where it is research with students and it's collaborative, which by definition kind of has to be small scale. So how does it ever become something more than that? Um, and there's a danger of things like, well, but we engage the union. So now it's been true student engagement because we had one student there 
and they represented all of the students. Um, and so that you can actually kind of tip over and this can almost be worse because you've almost lost the voice of lots of people by listening to one. There's research that's sort of for students that would help them, um, whether this is like information, advice, and guidance. When we think of a marketized system, a lot of the data that we produce is actually kind of fundamentally grounded and it's supposed to be useful for students. Um, either to help them learn or help them make different choices um, or on what they should do, um, how they should engage, how they should participate. Um, and then the really tricky area, um, which is part of this kind of what works agenda, which is like research on students. And this is this kind of taking a scientific approach to a social science setting and like a real human world setting where we will start to prove what we are doing by giving students different experiences. So we will segregate them into groups. We will nudge them with certain behaviors and look at the consequences, which is hugely unethical, particularly when you're taking potentially vulnerable and disadvantaged students and giving them different experiences. But that's the only way you can prove that what you've done has effectiveness. Um, I'm at Imperial. We're supposed to design an attainment metric for our outreach activity. So how are we proving that we, in like a two-week science intervention, have raised A-level scores by whatever percent? But that is what like the system is kind of asking us to do. And you're like, that you can't do that. <laughs> like there's so many factors and things happening to people at that stage of life that this small bit of influence would not you would never and they were like but you need to design a causal causal influence so the only way would then be able to take one group that you did it to and one that you didn't and then prove the difference and you were like that's not fair <laughs> you know or we're gonna we you know we might take a program where you take the brightest students and you try and give them a bit more extra tuition well the only way you can prove that was effective by like splitting that group in half and doing that for half and not half but that's the kind of direction this kind of logical way of thinking gets you and you're suddenly like, well, that seems a bit wrong or unfair. Um, but it's necessary if you want this kind of causal influence, um, which is what people are being pushed for as part of like a what works agenda. Um, but there's also a lot of interest. That's what gets funded. <laughs> that's what gets published. <laughs> um, you know, that's what will influence policy. So how do we operate in that space uh, where it's not just one thing to say it's bad, um, but how do you kind of shift the borders so that you do take an empowerment approach um, while getting at some of the outcomes that are desired by that approach, but not in such kind of negative eugenics type ways. Um, and there's a lot on student outcomes, uh, research and kind of voice. Um, you can either go the process of what students do, which is the kind of engagement work. It matters how you go about things. And you kind of think of research quite broadly, where you research positive outcomes from higher education, and then you backtrack in the behaviors that lead to those and measure the behaviors rather than the outcomes. Because you know these are the things that are likely to lead to the good outcomes you want. Versus, um, Sonia was involved in a long project on learning gain, which was much more interested in, well, let's just measure the outcome. So instead of measuring, you know, doing this kind of big picture, measure the outcome, backtrack to processes, measure those because those are easier. And that's actually where the change happened. Let's just focus on trying to measure the outcome. Well, it turns out that's very diverse um, and not easy to kind of pinpoint into a singularity. And there's a lot of debates by individual students and academics and policymakers about what those outcomes should be um, and what that should look like. 
Um, and it turns out it's largely going to be satisfaction. <laughs> uh, that's, that was what was selected at the end. Um, and there's interesting research now with the graduate outcomes data. We don't really know what it's going to look like. We've already heard hints that the data quality is not what people would like it to be to kind of get the outcomes that we want from the graduate outcomes approach. There's the LEO data, the salary data. Um, again, very tricky to prove what the institution's influence in that is um, when you could largely predict it off your family background. <laughs> um, but again, what do you do? Do you do sorting and send some students to certain institutions and then prove and see, you know, what degree this this institution, what impact it had, and how, you know, how do you prove it? Um, but at the same time, is there not a duty to students who think they are signing up to a higher education degree to improve their outcomes and opportunities? And what if they are taking degrees that are actually, in fact, not doing that? Um, you see this in arts education, which didn't used to be part of kind of the traditional higher education sector in the same way it is now. And as it got kind of moved into what HE is now, um, there's a lot of debate about are those courses actually fit for purpose mm. in terms of how they are structured, how they are funded, who goes on to them, um, and the nature of the output. Um, and is there arguments that actually there might be unfairness in the system? Or students who are brought in just like absolute cash cows into business programs at some schools um, and not being given a sufficient student experience, not really even fitting into accommodation, not having space in the library, um, and saying, is that like a quality HE experience? Um, and are there ways to kind of measure the outcomes of that experience and say, maybe it's not up to scratch? Uh, so where is there kind of something that I think are easy to dismiss as this is a bad approach and where could it be a good? Um, and where can we kind of support students to be researchers and think of owning their own data? Well, what does that start to look like when students get a greater sense of that? Um, just nearly wrapping up uh, with this kind of a, a bit of a policy analysis of kind of, we started in kind of 2010 with students at the heart of the system. Um, and now we're in this access and participation land. Um, and we had a shift from kind of block funding to funding following students, which led to an absolute shift in the interest in student experience research. And suddenly students became the agents of funding. Research follows funding. Um, and as the research kind of went from vice chancellors advocating for what portion of block funding they should receive to students being the agents of funding, the eye of Sauron absolutely shifted <laughs> on students um, and what we want to look at. Um, when I moved to the UK, no one, no one, there wasn't much student experience research and there wasn't interest in it. It certainly wasn't respected, which is completely different to now. Um, at the last SRHE conference, just about everything was on students and most of it was on WP students and access mm. issues and experience of students from different types of groups. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating to what used to just be lots of interviews with vice chancellors, <laughs> how they became vice chancellors. Um, the end of student number controls, which is kind of the biggest shakeup to the sector and the kind of opening of the market and how that came from treasury, not from education. When we think about education policy and impacts on what that looks like. Um, now we have a system where funding um, is increasingly going to be linked and is linked in some ways to satisfaction, retention and completion um, in total and across different groups, which is a complete shift in what like the conceptualization of higher education is, but actually follows what happens in lots of other countries 
um, where a lot of states in the U.S., for example, um, are, fund are using performance-based funding models largely on retention and graduation statistics. Um, so we're not in like a no man's land here. This has been done in states like Tennessee since the 1970s. Um, so a lot of what seems like new and crazy is just a different kind of large, often very blunt approach here, but there is a lot of precedence for that happening in different places. Um, and I think it would be interesting to think of funding linked to student salaries in the future and what that would start to look like and the consequences and how research on what that means and what that looks like needs to be done because there's not been much done. Um, the LEO data sets are not open. They are not, they're kind of, a few people have access to them in narrow ways. Um, and that's a big shift to other countries that have much more open approaches to d uh, data around students. Um, as a PhD student in the US, I went to workshops. I went to data camp, actually. <laughs> I did. I did. I went to data camp where we got lessons in the different national data sets and how to access them and use them and what the pitfalls were and how you manage them. Um, and it, that's a complete difference here where you need to pay for access to most of the databases. Um, or you need to have your question already outlined to request access to a database, which is not useful when you want to do exploratory quantitative research, mm -hmm. where you need to play around a bit and see where some correlations might be and where would be interesting to explore. If you already know the answer, it's not very useful to then go into a quantitative database to just have it be confirmed, because mm -hmm. um, you kind of need the data to tell you that. Um, so to conclude um, on student experience research, there's been a massive shift in prestige which is good for all of you here interested in student experience research. Um, as I mentioned, it follows the funding. Um, and there's increased funding for access and participation, evaluation and research, both within institutions and nationally. Um, and I'm very intrigued with the next REF. Um, and with 25% of QR funding being based on impact, and impact now being allowed to include things like the impact of pedagogical research on students, um, whether that leads to an additional shift. I mean, I've already had conversations at my institution about a group that were thinking of setting up like physics education research. And when I mentioned, you know, in the future, you could be eligible for QR funding, that kind of opened their eyes because that is, that is the prestige marker of research. Um, and suddenly if doing research on students, you can be eligible for that and that counts, that suddenly starts to position pedagogical research very differently in the landscape, especially when it's, you know, 25% of something um, does start to add up to quite a lot and could really shift the profile of what research is, assuming it's high quality. Um, and as I mentioned, the monolithic, the student experience to students' experiences, there is a danger that students are kind of categorized in ways that may not be authentic to them. Um, I've certainly run into this in doing research on black students' experiences and talking to black students who went to uh, independent schools, being like, I don't really understand most of what you're talking about. <laughs> I fit in just fine here. Um, so, so, you know, things falling on different lines. So different students having very different kinds of experiences and needing to acknowledge that and not being like, but my research says you're a black student, therefore your experience is going to be like this. And a lot of students going, you know, but I have my, you know, I have my own experience and I've got my friends and my way of being and how, you know, and acknowledging that students get to be the agents of their identity more than us placing categories on them and then defining or assuming what their experience is going to be like and what it has been 
and what they want it to be and what they're looking for in the future. And that we need to maintain that agency in students driving what happens rather than thinking that can be assigned on to them. And this salary band is what you should be judged, your success should be judged by versus a lot of students saying, but I want like a meaningful job. You know, I want to make a difference in the world because <laughs> it tends not to be highly paid. Um, but how do we kind of change the discourse around that? So that's, you know, that sense of what students want is reflected in the outcomes from higher education. Um, there's been a massive shift in the professionalization and managing of student services and support, and it will be interesting as the new network conveners, haha, <laughs> not my job anymore, um, think of liaising with organizations like Amashi, you know, where a lot of the kind of on-the-ground student experience activity happens, and increasingly people are wanting to work in research-like ways out of organizations like that and the AUA, um, you know, as that develops, where are the relationships with kind of student experience research and student access and experience research? Um, and what is the kind of representational student voice and students as co-researchers and partners going forward and where does that kind of sit and stand? How are students encouraged and enabled to be active agents in that space? Where is there an appropriate place for a representational voice? When is that helpful? When is it not? How is that problematized? Um, and as I always conclude, because I think it's important, these are my kind of principles for when we think about student experience research. Um, it's about engaging students. That's the kind of point from my perspective, which includes challenging students, um, not allowing them kind of, this is a system that's like handed to you. This isn't an education that you buy um, or that you receive. It's something you kind of earn. But how do you kind of up that challenge and support students at the same time and acknowledge what that support needs to look like? How are students informed about what's happening and how they're being researched and how their data is being used? Um, how do you seek, ask, and report on feedback in equal measures? <laughs> so that you, in theory, spend as much time as you do recruiting students to participate in a survey. You spend that same amount of time reporting back to students on the survey, uh, rather than thinking it's kind of a one-way approach. Um, and how are there opportunities for students to be involved at all points in time? Um, how are students held responsible in this so they're not let off the hook? And an ethos of working with and not for students. Thank you very much.